0: This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Yeah, you guessed it. I also connect with Christina on Twitter, where she learned about a historic rehab project Preservation Maryland was undertaking. Since then, I've become a huge fan of her work and the way in which she expertly weaves history and food together, which are two of my biggest passions. For anyone with an appetite, this is the interview for you. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Christina Tasik, who is a reporter with the Baltimore Sun uh, and whose normal beat covers dining and food, but often intersects with history and culture because... uh, food and history and culture all go hand in hand in hand. Um, so it's it's fun. I think this might be our first journalist that we've had the opportunity to interview in the past 190 episodes or so. So normally when we talk to people, Christina, we ask about like their path to preservation, but yours is a little bit different. Yours is a path to journalism. So where'd you grow up? What put you on this path? Um, and what was sort of the the spark that made, made you a journalist?
1: Yeah, so I, when I was, I studied history, in college. And I, I thought that I was going to go and be a documentary filmmaker. I worked in TV for a little bit. I worked um, at the National Geographic Film Archive um, in Washington, DC. And after a while, um, really wanted to start kind of telling my own stories instead of being part of an, you know, being part of a larger project that might involve 50 people. And, you know, you're telling one small segment of that. Um the idea of being a journalist and being able to tell, you know, a, tell a story from start to finish really appealed to me. So I went to grad school, I went to the American University of Beirut in Lebanon and got my master's in media studies and and I think kind of the rest is history. I mean, I I was working after college, I worked for a, you know, a fashion magazine in Beirut. Um, and just you know, there was so much, going on around me at the time. And I think that when I think about like the spark of what I wanted, you know, of what really made me feel like I wanted to be an, a journalist, I really wanted to be in the thick of things. You know, I think towards the end of my time in Lebanon, there were a series of protests and crises happening. I mean, there's even more going on in Lebanon right now, unfortunately. Um, but I just, you know, I felt this kind of hunger to be, you know, in this in the center of the action. And, uh, and I think that's really what drew me to the idea of being, of working for a newspaper that's like really in the heart of his community.
0: And so where'd you grow? Are you a a Marylander? I'm actually from Northern
1: Virginia originally. Um, From, yeah, from Alexandria, Virginia, not super far from Kind of like in between Old Town, Alexandria and Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. Uh, And, um, you know, grew up, you know, really totally enthralled by history. Um, I think, you know, it started way too young with my mom getting me a Felicity doll. Like how many girls developed a like obsession with colonial American history because of Felicity.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about there's a woman who wrote a whole um, series of articles on that. We need to get her on to talk (laughs) about how. Felicity basically inspired an entire generation of female historians, which is pretty <laughs> amazing. Yeah, um,
1: yeah.
0: We did interview uh, many episodes ago, a woman named Kathleen Ernst, who was the ghostwriter for almost all of the Felicity books. Really? Um, yeah. So, well, you I thought that, to...
1: that's so interesting that they had a ghostwriter because it's not like, you know, she was super famous. The, the, the author they gave it, they attributed it to.
0: The, these are the things that we find out on preserve cast it's you never know what we're gonna what we're gonna uncover so um, <laughs> so um, you go from which is cool I didn't know about the the Lebanese background but so you go from that you end up working in journalism but I think people are familiar with traditional journalism you're reporting on issues and things like that it always seems to me like dining and like movie review seems like the the sweetest gig because like you get to do all these fun things regularly and I'm sure it's a regular job and there's a lot of job components to that. But how do you become the dining reporter for the Baltimore Sun? How do you go from just sort of journalism in general with this history bent to doing dining?
1: Well it was actually very random. You know, I read about food dining reporters who went to culinary school or worked in kitchens and I am kind of like winced. So I'm like I didn't do any of those things. Um, I am like not a great cook by Um, you know, as you can ask almost anyone, um, I was, so I started at the sun doing social media and then I was working the kind of like night shift rewrite second shift beat. That's like, you know, 2.30 to 11.30 PM and basically was looking to kind of get off that beat and do, you know, basically any other beat. At the newspaper. Um and I knew that our features department, I mean it's like the really um like unglamorous way to to um to get in it's just like i knew that we needed a features reporter and i thought sure i could write about music i could write about art sure i like all of these things um you know i'd written about fashion um and the editor at the time said well actually what we really want is a dining reporter and i said absolutely sure you know and it's kind of you kind of build this confidence i think working um on you know sec- the second shift position where it's like you're covering everything from politics to you know to crime To, you know, the environment and, you know, you kind of learn that, okay, you can write about pretty much everything if you read enough. And, uh, and so I think I kind of had that confidence and was like, okay, sure. I can, I can write about food. Why not? Um, so that's kind of how I I landed that, that job. And
0: And how long have you been, how long have you been doing that
1: now? So I've been doing it. I want to say three years. Okay. I think about three years, almost three years. Um, Cause it was kind of, yeah, it was like a little bit mushy. Well, like, you know, kind of like my transition from, um, you know, the, the rewrite position to writing about food. Um, and
0: I guess the, the, the question that is at least on my mind, maybe some people's listening's mind is how often do you, I mean, now with COVID, I'm sure it's a little bit more challenging, but how often do you eat out?
1: So it has changed a lot. Definitely before COVID, I was probably going out multiple times a week and really making sure that I had, you know, a review, if not every week, every other week. Um, And now COVID really did change everything when it came to restaurants and it came, it changed everything when it came to my beat Um, because suddenly the story wasn't necessarily like, oh, here's a, here's a cool trend. Um, It's kind of like, there's a real sense of urgency um, and the, this isn't just a trend, but there's like an urgent, you know, restaurants pivoting for their survival. And so that really became the shift of my focus above, you know, here's these, you know, above kind of pointing people to like, here's this delicious restaurant to try, or, you know, here's an, here's a terrible restaurant to avoid. It became more, um, I became more interested in writing like sort of trend stories about how restaurants were evolving in this really crazy time.
0: And obviously, within all of this um, and a lot of what you do, probably given your background, what you described here, um, there's there's this passion for history. You you write a lot of history articles still um, and, you know, look at different topics. And and there's a lot of um, connection between history and food. Do you see sort of a common thread in that? Do you find that readers are interested in that? Uh, Do the editors want to see that? What, what is the, the common thread between the two and how do you, how do you look at that?
1: Well, yeah, I, I definitely think it's true, particularly in a place like Baltimore that is so kind of nostalgia driven and where we have these signature foods that are, you know, crabs, uh, you know, crabs and Old Bay and snowballs that go back generations. I think there's a really strong connection between history and food. And I was thinking, you know, the first story I wrote Um, on the Dining Beat, I think was a profile of Kara Mae Harris of Old Line Plate. I don't know if you know her blog. Yeah, she's she's uh, been on the show.
0: She's an upcoming guest. We're Uh, hearing her next week. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I think she's just amazing. And she, you know, particularly like in the restaurant industry, I think you've seen a trend within the past few decades of really returning to regional foods, um, you know, and to historic foods. And it kind of ties in with the farm to table trend. Um, So people are looking more at making foods that are, um, you know, kind of using, I'll use the example of a crab cake, um, which is like, I think people are turning more to a traditional recipe for the crab cake, um, which would be not so much jumbo lump centered um, but would include all parts of the crab. And so I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that as people become more um, interested in eating local, like eating locally grown food, um, I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with an interest in like historic recipes. Um, you know, like you can see this with... Um, You know, bread, for example, people are really interested in making local bread. And so then they'll turn back to these like historic recipes and these techniques that go back, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. Yeah, we Um, had
0: um, Seamus Blackley on, who was also the creator of the Xbox, but now dabbles in uh, ancient bread making and gets archaeologically found yeast deposits. (laughs) And creates like Egyptian era bread. Oh
1: my gosh, that is so cool! I, was he? Mm-hmm. There was an article about him in the New York Times. Maybe I think yes. I've read about that. That yeah. is amazing. You read it in the I Times and then hear it on
0: Preservecast.
1: Oh my <laughs> gosh! Yeah, I need to listen to that and then ask him if he can send me some of that bread because I'm so curious about that. Yeah,
0: and now he's very into Ashkenazi bagel making.
1: Fascinating,
0: as we all are. I'm in absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I also
0: think that, and I'm curious if you've considered this or done a study of this, but I, I mean there's great strip mall you know dining and great hole in the wall places. But I often think when it comes to a city, and I, you know I live in Frederick, Maryland, and we see this over and over again here is that the restaurants in historic buildings seem for one reason or another. Now there could be a lot of different reasons for this. do better and stay longer than the ones in the new build construction in and around Frederick. And I don't know what that means or why that is, but I often wonder, is there an ambiance that comes with that that makes the dining experience better? And I don't know if you've seen that in Baltimore as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I can think of examples both like in that and out of that, you know, it's right. like one of the really sad things that I have seen, I mean, there's obviously been so many sad, um, sad trends, and this is probably a more, you know, this is kind of a luxury problem to have. But um, prior to the pandemic, there were a lot of really um, cool new restaurants that had opened up in downtown buildings. For example, like the Alexander Brown restaurant, which opened up in this like amazing right. old um bank building, Shea Hugo, which had opened up in another really cool historic bank building. Um uh, maybe it wasn't a bank building, but it was, you know, there was a, a series of really uh fine restaurants that had opened downtown in historic buildings. And a lot of those have shut down since the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, I think, and that has to do partly with like just b- how Baltimore's downtown operates and, you know, the lack of, I think, people eating you know, a lot, the lack of office workers and lack of business luncheons. Um, but in other neighborhoods, I mean, I definitely see, you know, I think there's a lot of really cool restaurants that have found ways to adapt these historic structures. Um, you know, especially I live in Hamden in Baltimore and there's a lot of really cool restaurants that have come into former mills um, and found kind of like this adaptive reuse sweet spot that I think creates a level of atmosphere that people are just really enchanted by.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes you go into like a, and there's not to cast aspersions because some of my favorite restaurants are in strip malls, but um, <laughs> you know, you go to a strip mall place and sometimes then they use faux historic fabric to try and give it, Um, Ambiance. so it's sort of like we're trying to always recreate that which we find in in historic places sometimes oh Um, definitely
1: I was staying at a beach house recently and I realized this because we live in an old house and had been like refinishing our floors and we're we were kind of like bemoaning the fact that there's like all of these this like sort of I don't know if it's termite damage but it's some sort of damage in the wood and it was just like oh it was like this headache you know what were we going to do about it But we're staying at this like brand new beach house and realized that the tables had like faux termite damage, faux ant damage. And I was like, wow, this this thing that we were kind of saying was a bad thing. It's like, actually, people really want to recreate this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you see that, too, in the comparison between the historic and the modern, like people love log, for example, exposed log. But, you know, people in the 18th and 19th century did everything they possibly could. To cover log because right. log was sort of a sign that you were lower down socioeconomically, right? Um, and it fell apart, right? So the reason that when you uncover a log building and you see logs is because they've been covered, <laughs> and then people are like, "Oh, but I want to leave it off. It's so charming." So yeah, there's this there's this yeah, kind as you're seeing
1: in Hagerstown, yeah, right?
0: whole, whole, yeah, exactly. So um, so let's take a quick break here and then come back and then talk about some of your favorite history, food, overlap stories. You mentioned snowballs. We have listeners around the globe for that matter, and they may not be familiar with that is. Crabs, Old Bay, anything else that um, gets you uh, excited to chat about. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Christina Tasek, a reporter with The Baltimore Sun. Uh, We've been talking about the food beat, the dining beat, um, her interest in history and the overlap between the two. Um, Before we took the break, we said we were going to talk about some of your favorite history food overlap stories. You've got a bunch of good ones out there. Um, Snowballs. What is a snowball? What did you uncover?
1: So a snowball, um, you know, I, well, before I moved to Baltimore, I thought it was a snow cone, basically shaved ice, pretty straightforward, flavored with some sort of syrup. Um, But what I realized is that, you know, quickly, I think after coming to, after moving to Maryland, anyone finds out that they're like they're like a sacrament here, basically, that they are not just, you know, something that you have at like, you know, a church picnic or something. It's, there's snowball stands everywhere. Um, People sell them on street corners, people sell them in restaurants. Um, And I guess um, something that, you know, I recently wrote a column uh, about the since what may be the oldest snowball stand in the country, which is right here in Baltimore. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people associate them more with New Orleans um, or with Hawaii, where shave ice is really popular. Um, but yeah, Baltimore definitely has its own tradition. Um, one of the unique things here is that we put marshmallow on snowballs, which I, th- I think is like pretty much only a Baltimore thing. You know, other cities, uh, I think Hawaii, um, and New Orleans, they both use condensed milk. Um, I think in Japan it's also common to use condensed milk. Um, I will say after researching some of, uh, Japan's history of shave, shaved ice, um, I did have a little bit of like a, a snowball inferiority complex. When you see, you know, some of the really complex designs um, that have happened. I mean, the J- Japan snowball tradition goes back, you know, hundreds of years. Um, how snowballs came to Baltimore, um, it's not quite clear. You know, there's no like one person who is the founder of the snowball. Um, but there are different reports of it kind of coinciding with the rise of um, you know, the industrialization of ice, um, which, you know, makes perfect sense because, you know, snowballs are definitely considered, um, you know, I think in the, during the Great Depression, they were called like the the poor man's Sunday. Um, So it was something that was accessible to everyday people. Um, But prior to like ice becoming widely available, um, you know, in in the 1800s, You know, ice was obviously something that only very wealthy people could have had access to. Um, And so you see kind of the rise of snowballs at the same time that ice is becoming more and more widely available in places like Baltimore.
0: Is there any connection to any particular ethnic group? Because I think like Italians have, you know, Italian ice, which goes back way you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years to the Romans and things like that. Is it, is it connected to any one ethnic group or is it just sort of a hodgepodge?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I didn't like, I didn't see that. Um, you know, I think the founders of this snow of the Walter gardens, um, snowball stand, which is, which may be the oldest snowball stand in the country. Um, I believe that they were German. Um, so I was looking to see if there had been, you know, any Japanese influence Um, and it's possible. I mean, I didn't even think about the idea of an Italian influence, but, you know, you're right. Absolutely. That there's a, you know, tradition of shaved ice and going back to the Romans. Um, I didn't find like a clear cut, you know, this group dominates the snowball trade, Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not out there
0: possible well it's 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 fodder for another story
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah and now it's been embraced by every ethnic group in baltimore right like oh, absolutely. There's, there's nobody who doesn't love it. it's it's like one of the things that that like unites us
1: really yeah it brings people together
0: so uh other things what what have been some of your other favorite food history connections done anything on crabs old bay um, yeah,
1: Crabs Old Bay has such a fascinating origin story um that its Jewish creator who um you know, emigrated here um I think I want to say in the 1800s um and worked for McCormick and I think was a- may have actually been fired because he was Jewish. Um and lo and behold came up with you know, our signature uh spice blend for steaming crabs. Um, that's a really interesting one. I, one story that I really, this was one of my, this is a story that I wrote even before I joined the features department was about Lumbee food traditions. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that Baltimore is home to a pretty, the Baltimore area is home to a pretty large Lumbee population. Um, Lumbee uh, Indians who moved here um, in the 20th century um, from North Carolina. And for, um, a lot of folks that I talk to, they have this really strong connection back to North Carolina that's maintained through food. And so, you know, one woman who runs a bakery in Baltimore will even drive back to North Carolina to get the sweet potatoes for her sweet potato pie, because it's a connection to, you know, the, her homeland. Um, and I thought, I thought that was so cool just because it was, you know, these, it shows you how recipes can travel through families through generations and generations and, and be a tie to so much more than just, you know, something delicious to eat.
0: And so um you're working on anything else. Food connected.
1: Um, food. I'm trying to think food if working on food. I'm working on something history connected right now, but it's not necessarily food related. What's the um, history
0: connection
1: here? it's I'm working on a story about Mount Clair um, and mm-hmm. this plantation in Southwest Baltimore um, that there's an effort right now to reimagine it particularly with a focus on enslaved lives there um, it, and I think you know it's like definitely another one of these cases where I think people don't even realize that it's there I didn't realize it was there until I was started working on this story. Um, there's this like seventeen hundred circa seventeen fifty seven uh, plantation house right in the middle of Carroll Park in Southwest Baltimore. Um, and so that's kind of like a, you know, just a fascinating uh, initiative over there. Um, and then I'm also working on this kind of made me think of um, the Jonathan Street house. Uh, there's um an effort underway. To um, preserve some cocker's homes, they're the home of uh, free and enslaved African American ship cockers um, in from the 1800s, 17 and 1800s in Fell's Point. Um, so, definitely, really um, some fascinating historic preservation happening in Baltimore right now.
0: Yeah, and pleased to say, for people who don't know, the Johnson Street project is a rehab project that Preservation Maryland is working on, and pleased to say that. We also provided some financial support to the Cocker's Houses. So it, all, right. it all comes full circle. And Christina right. didn't even know that. That wasn't a plug. So um, let's, are, are you, um, I'm just curious. This is, you, this is a, well, you're a reporter. So you, you're, you're used to asking people questions that they weren't prepped with. But I'm just curious, have you ever thought about putting all of this together in some type of book or a collection of different stories or sort of like a more in-depth look at Baltimore and food and history?
1: I would really love to. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess like everyone always says, like I don't know that I'm like really the expert because like I, I'm always saying to like you know at least I'm always thinking you know people like Kara Mae Harris of Old Line Plate like I'd love for her to write a book. Um, but I yeah I would I would if someone wants to you know give me money to write a book on this I'm I'm all for it because um, I think there's a lot of Baltimore's history that people don't necessarily you know there's like the the main stories um that i think kind of have seared on people's brains but i think there's a lot that kind of has gotten lost in the shuffle yeah
0: yeah Yeah, and food is a good place to kind of dive into those those unknown stories because everybody has to do it no matter who they are
1: yeah Um, yeah it's definitely a great connector
0: yeah so um since we have a journalist here with us and we have people listening who work in museums, and historic sites and preservation groups and local government, things like that. Um, any advice for listeners who want to engage with journalists, maybe around history or the intersection of food and dining? What's a good pitch? What gets what actually gets your attention?
1: Um, I'm a sucker for... I mean, and this is kind of like as a consumer, both of news and of food, you know, anything that's like the little known, you know, I love reading like Atlas Obscura because there are or the gastro obscure. you know, the web, that website where it's like, oh, here's mm-hmm. this little known thing that people didn't realize. Um, I'm, you know, I'm definitely always in love with the, you know, this was hidden in plain sight. People didn't, it was, you know, it was right under our noses um, type of story. Um, a good pitch is, you know, anything that, for me, it's a story that kind of like both makes sense and surprises me at the same time. You know, it might hook onto something that I was already aware of, but kind of almost test the limits of what I what I realized. You know, like um what I think makes this story about Mount Clair cool is that, you know, it's you know, again, it's like a hidden in plain sight plantation that I think people know existed, um, you know, or they, they might not be totally surprised existed. Um, but it's not something that's necessarily at the front, at the top of mind. Um, or like, I love story, you know, I think the papa is a perfect example. Like I could read a lot of stories about papa's, which is just like, you know, this, um, this fruit that was like considered the poor man's banana, um, for many years. Um, it has a very short, Harvesting season, yeah, um and it's like actually pawpaw season right now. I think um, it
0: is. It is. There's a I and people have like their special pawpaw spots. I do. <laughs> I won't mention <laughs> it on this on this podcast, but I'd be happy to tell you later.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, so I can go foraging. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think any story about a pawpaw is cool because it's like here's this thing that's like totally hidden in plain sight. Everybody was eating them a hundred years ago. And we've basically forgotten about them. But now there's an interest now in, you know, foraging and harvesting pawpaws and and finding new ways to use them in food. Um, so I don't know if that's like a super clear answer on what makes a great pitch. I think it can be, you know, hard to pin down what, um, you know, what exactly makes a, an attention getting story. But I can always tell, you know, if like if I tell someone and I'm like kind of excited about it, and I can hear them being excited too. And then, you know, and then I'm like, oh, this is, we're really onto something. Um, that's usually my barometer.
0: Well, that's cool. And that's, that's helpful, I think, for people to, to hear. Um, and obviously just coming from a place of passion and, you know, selling the story that matters to you. Um, how is the, be- what's the best way nowadays to get to reach a reporter? Now I know everybody's different, but what's like, is it, is it email? Is it Twitter? What's the, clearly not facts? but like, what's the, what, what what gets your attention fastest?
1: Um, I hate to say Twitter because that's going to make me sound like, yeah, I, like, I feel like as a journalist, I spend way too much time on Twitter. We all spend way too much time on Twitter and yet, and yet it is a really good way to get people's attention. In fact, I think that the first time I found out about the log cabin in Hagerstown, it was on Twitter. And I think I was like, I just saw this picture of a log cabin and was like, oh, I must write, I must find out more, <laughs> you know? And um, and so I do think Twitter is a is a pretty good way of getting people's attention, um, unfortunately, because I wish we could all just be off Twitter and be enjoying like our, in, enjoying the rest of our lives.
0: Yeah, maybe we could all make a pact, like it was like one week we would just all leave or something.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Um, before we let you go, and this has been really fun, we'll have to have you back after you write your next story, um, or you, you learn something else about a, a different unique food stuff, but, um, favorite historic place or site, probably a difficult question for somebody who writes about them, who grew up enamored with them. But, uh, if you had to pick one, what would it be?
1: Is this, do I have any parameters? Like, does it have no. to be in Maryland? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay. And I only get one, right? Um, yeah
0: generally speaking.
1: I'm going to have to shout out probably, okay, and it doesn't even exist anymore, which is sad, is the Claude Moore Colonial Farm in McLean, Virginia, where I used to work there as a little kid when I was, you know, obsessed with Felicity. And um, and it's like an, it was an 18th century tenant farm and they would allow kids to, um, you know, dress up in colonial clothes and like harvest Food and plant, you know, and tend to crops, um, and it was right next to the CIA, which I think might have had something to do with why it recently um, was closed um, because they they were like kicked off the land. But I thought it was really interesting. You know, I think there's been more and more for so long um, we've you know focused our attention on like the lives of the rich and famous, and this was a really cool project that um, you know was gearing up toward to focusing people's attention on the lives of everyday people, um, you know, tenant farmers during the colonial era. And also, you know, from a kid's perspective, it was so cool to be, you know, planting, like working in a garden and, you know, getting dirty and like, you know, pushing barrels up a hill. Um, so that was like a really, that was like such a gem of my youth. And I'm really sorry that, um, that it had to shut down.
0: Yeah. I think we need a picture of you as the old colonial child. Oh my
1: gosh. Yeah. And there um, is one. Um, I think my the, mom is saving it for total blackmailing. Purposes. Maybe for the show
0: notes, if you're
1: willing. <laughs> I think that would be pretty good.
0: Um, so this is, it's, it's been really fun. Your, your articles are fantastic and it's always fun to read them. Um, people can follow you. Speaking of Twitter, where can people catch <laughs> catch you? What's the what's yeah, the handle? Un- all that stuff.
1: Unfortunately, I am on Twitter. My Twitter is Christina. I recently changed my Twitter handle um, to be more professional. It was Xtina and now it's Christina Tasic. Um, and, and spell Tasic for people. It's T is in Tom, K is in King, A C I K, um, and it's just Double. Christina Tasic.
0: And we'll put a we'll put a link to that in the show notes here, so people can just pop over there, click on it, and give Christina a follow. And then you can get updated on all of her food history and uh, various musings um, on Twitter when you're when you're sitting on Twitter. Um, so this has been fun. We will definitely have you back. You're welcome anytime. And um, looking forward to hearing about what you eat next.
1: Awesome! Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.